MacCast, Sunday, November 20th, 2022. Hey, Mac Geeks, it's time for your MacCast, the show for Mac Geeks by Mac Geeks. I'm Adam, and this is a show where we discuss all things Macintosh. How are you doing? Welcome back to the MacCast. Glad to be back here with you for it. Another week of Apple news, hints, tips, tricks, all the goings-ons in the Apple and Mac community. Hope you are having a wonderful day, evening, weekend, whatever it might be. I am looking over the show notes, and yeah, we got a few things to talk about this week. We're going to get into uh, Apple's metaverse. Yeah, not the greatest term. We'll talk about that a little bit. We'll talk about what that means, but AR, VR headset stuff, you know. We've been working on this. Uh, little Apple privacy troubles, maybe. Uh, some things were uncovered this week that I want to get into and talk with you about and kind of see what you think. We've got a couple of little Apple bugs to get into. Nothing major, but something to talk about. And some Apple TV Plus uh, things, some Apple TV things. Uh, and that'll kind of round out the news. Oh, I guess we got some potential uh, products that... Never saw the light of day. <laughs> we'll get into those and uh, new features coming out and more pro plans for 2024 and upcoming things for Apple and what's next for iPhone. And yeah, we have quite a few things to talk about, like I said, things to get into. And then we're going to get into some of your feedback. I got some great feedback from the last episode of the MacCast about patchers and running legacy OSs or... I guess new OSs on legacy computers is a better way to put that. I have some tips and tricks for you for iOS to get into, something I want to talk about, and maybe get some of your tips and tricks. I'm looking for some as well. And then uh, we're going to do some of those holiday gift recommendations. I gave you a few on the last episode of the MacCast and asked for you to send in some of your recommendations, and some of you did. So we have some recommendations from the community, right? We're getting to the holiday times, and maybe you're looking for a gift idea, and hopefully that will help you out. And that will round out uh, this episode of the MacCast. So it should be a good one. I say we dive right in, starting with whatever we're going to call Apple's AR VR world. Uh, I think we can't do Apple World, right? Because we already had that way back in the day. Is anybody around? Or E-World, I guess it was. Anybody remember E-World? It was kind of Apple's little play, I think, against AOL back in the uh, in the early days of the internet when we were on uh, 2400 baud modems, right? And dialing in. <laughs> yeah, I'm old, folks. Hope you remember that. Well, this week... Bloomberg's Mark Gurman is chiming in on Apple's AR VR headset. He's reconfirming some of the things that we already knew that, uh, hey, Apple is planning to probably put this thing out likely next year, that they're getting close to wrapping up their operating system, which is rumored to be called ROS or Reality OS, I think as a code name of Oak. I think we talked about that on the last episode of the MacCast. Uh, it's going to be a high ticket item. The first version that comes out, it's expected to be somewhere between two thousand or three thousand dollars. Supposed to be uber light and you know really nice kind of 
top of the line as you might expect from Apple, although that pricing is well above a lot of the other competitor products at this point. It's expected to include a Mac-level M2-style chip in it, over 10 cameras, have super high resolution, probably the highest resolution VR displays on the market. So it should be some impressive hardware. And it sounds like now Apple is trying to work on the software portion of it. And they've been posting some job listings and it's looking like they're trying to get together. I think we talked about on the last episode of the MacCast some launch titles to bring with it so that, you know, content is going to be king on this thing. I mean, the hardware is great and that's cool, but it's really going to come down to what does it do and what does it do well and what does it do for us? And so based on some recent job postings, Bloomberg is saying that Quote, the company is searching for a software producer with experience in visual effects and game asset pipelines who can create digital content for augmented and virtual reality environments. And that's led uh, Mark Gurman over there to think that Apple is looking to build a kind of 3D mixed reality world. And we're not going to call it a metaverse because that's what Meta has over there. So we're going to call it the Appleverse, Iverse, I don't, I don't know, Inverse. What do you think? What do you think this should be called if Apple did a virtual reality world? And if they did, would you want to live in that virtual augmented reality world? Whatever Apple's going to end up doing, if they do something in that space, it has to be different, right? It has to be because Tim Cook has come out publicly in some very recent interviews and been pretty critical of the metaverse. He doesn't think that there's a place or something that people want to do. So what could Apple be looking to do that would be really different. And it sounds like it's going to be really focused on that whole mixed reality thing. So not just VR, but a lot of the AR elements coming into it. And it could be quite interesting, whatever they might come up with. But it sounds like they're hiring for that. And that is something that we might expect to see sometime next year. So I'd be really curious to know, is this something that excites you? I'm not so sure how I feel about the metaverse or augmented reality or virtual reality. I guess I'm a little more excited about the possibilities of augmented reality. I think there's some really good game things or interesting game things you could do there. Obviously, there's some practical uses with things like instruction manuals or maybe just doing work around the house or my killer feature because I'm terrible at remembering people's names is I'd love to have a set of glasses I could wear that would recognize people in my contact list or maybe from my photos and just display their name to me, because I sometimes forget people's names, especially if I've only met them a few times and, uh, you know, haven't run into them in a while. So that would be my killer app. But do you have a killer app for the uh, for AR, VR, augmented reality? If Apple does something, what do you want to see them doing? Shoot me some email. Send me some feedback. Maccast at gmail.com. For sure, if Apple does get into that space, I know one thing a lot of us would be concerned about would be security and privacy. Sounds like Apple got into a little bit of trouble this week uh, thanks to a pair of developers out of Canada and Germany. They've uncovered that uh, back in iOS 14.6, it looks like the App Store app was sending just about every tap, everything that you did within the app, sending that data along to Apple along with a consistent ID number and a number of items that could allow them to basically profile your device and potentially be used to track your 
movements and information across multiple Apple apps. One of the developers who uncovered this is Tommy Misk, who is actually same guy that uncovered way back when you might remember this, where Apple was in their apps bypassing VPN. So if you had a VPN turned on, um, they would still be sending data back to Apple outside of the VPN tunnel, which was really not cool. Apple, I think, ultimately ended up fixing that. Um, but it was based on Tommy's research. And so he's at it again, looking at, uh, you know, what kinds of data Apple's sending back. And um, they also noticed that there was similar similar behavior in other Apple apps, the music app, TV, books, iTunes, store, and the stock apps all send back data to Apple and a lot of data, seemingly excessive data, uh, and it's not really clear why they're doing that. Apple hasn't really responded to this yet, so very interesting. Fortunately, uh, they also looked at the health and wallet apps and found that those apps are transmitting no data at all, so that's a good thing. Uh, You wouldn't want that going on. But the trouble here, I think, for Apple is they've made a big deal recently out of this idea that, you know, they're the company that's going to respect and value your privacy. And to make matters worse on this story, Apple's tracking seems to completely ignore any of their privacy settings like opting out of tracking or turning on or turning off rather the personalization settings. So, you know, they're not supposed to be profiling you for ads and things if you turn off the personalization settings or if you're opting out of tracking then you're supposed to be opted out of tracking. But it seems like Apple's not applying the rules to themselves only to third-party apps. And of course, the news of this has triggered a lawsuit in California, a class action lawsuit. So I think that's to be expected. Um, But yeah, this is not looking good. Now, some of you might be saying, well, Adam, this is only iOS 14.6, which is an old operating system. Maybe they're not doing that anymore. And it looks like there is some evidence that they could be sending sending similar types of data even in iOS 16. It's not confirmed, but you know it's possible that they've turned this on and they're not turning it off. They haven't sort of moved away from it. And remember that it was in iOS 14.5, the one right before the one they were testing here, where Apple introduced those stricter anti-tracking measures for third-party apps. So not applying the rules to themselves, making them immune to their own app tracking transparency policy, it's not a good look for Apple. And I think they're right to be called out on something like this. And another interesting part of the story that came out is that, you know, Apple has an internal ad sales team and they're being told to kind of change some terminology or avoid specific terminology when talking about how Apple is doing advertising. And I think it says a lot about how Apple is trying to maybe set different rules or just avoid certain terms that might be controversial, even though they might actually be doing some of these practices. So it says that they've been told to use the term, for example, audience refinement instead of targeting or to refer to their platform instead of an algorithm that might be analyzing data to do tracking. And then there's a term called, I guess, conquesting. And I was not familiar with this term until I read it in the piece, but apparently that means the practice of showing your your ads um, or your buyer's ads 
rather than your their competitors when someone searches for a specific term. So Apple's sales team in that scenario has been said, hey, use a term like competitor keywords or brand defense. So trying to put more of a positive spin on those terms, but they all ultimately mean the same thing. And obviously to do that kind of tracking and to build algorithms and things like that, you're going to need data. So this very much looks like Apple is collecting that data internally. And even if they are using it internally, they've still sort of told us as consumers, as users of these devices, that, hey, we respect your privacy. Uh, If you choose to not opt into these things, we're not going to be doing it. And this seems to contradict that. So not really a good look. And it really does seem even more nefarious in light of a lot of the recent reports that we've talked about on this podcast where Apple Apple has said that they want to significantly expand their ad business. Now, something that did come out this week that's a little bit more interesting on that side of the story is there were new details from the site, the information that kind of can contradict some of those earlier reports. According to their sources, they say that Apple is satisfied with the current state of their advertising revenue growth, and they're not looking to make any changes in the volume of ads presented on their devices and iPhones and things like that. And this new report does seem to jive with some earlier reports. I think we talked about a few years back where Apple had possibly been looking into adding ads into features like Siri spotlight searches. So you would do a search result and then they would sell kind of, you know, sponsored results within that search. They had been looking into that and had kind of decided not to move forward with that. And the sources uh, for the information told them similar things that they had those plans, but they completely scrapped that. So it's unclear what Apple's up to. It seems like, uh, you know, I think a lot of the revenue growth on the app side is going to happen maybe over on Apple TV and with things like their new sports offerings, which are going to have, you know, built-in ads and Apple can sell ads into that to kind of generate more revenue. Hopefully they're not going to be bombarding this with more ads within our apps. Although we had heard, right, that they're looking to maybe doing some of the app store style ads for you know, book publishers or podcasters like myself. So podcasters would be able to buy ad space and kind of promote their ads within the podcasting app. And same thing where book authors within the books app and things like that. I think that might naturally happen. I don't know how I feel about that right now, but definitely I feel very strongly that Apple, if they're positioning themselves to be a company that protects our security and privacy, and is not going to do our, not going to do ad tracking without our consent. They need to apply those rules equally across the board. And when stuff like this gets uncovered, I think we should definitely scrutinize it and look into it. So it'll be interesting to see. I hope Apple responds to this in some sort of public way now that this information has come out. Likely they're just going to stay quiet, um, but we'll have to wait and see. But interesting development this week, nonetheless. So here's a little interesting thing that happened this week, and I'm not really sure what to make of it. This is a little odd Safari bug that impacted iOS and iPadOS. A few people, uh, there were multiple reports, I think a lot of them came in through Mac Rumors, of users who were reporting crashes inside Safari on iOS and iPadOS when they started to type terms into the URL bar. And it was crashing after typing different three-letter combinations, things like W-A-L or W-E-L or O-L-D. There were a number of different combinations that seemed to be causing 
this crash. And reports were coming from users of iOS 15.7.1, iOS 16, iOS 16.1, 16.1.1, 16.2. So it, you know, even the betas, and it seemed to be relatively random uh, who this was happening to and why it was happening. I'm only mentioning it because maybe this happened to you and you were a little bit concerned or curious, but it seems like the issue was ultimately resolved by Apple on the server side because they didn't really push out a an update. And so, you know, as a web developer, as somebody who works on the web, I'd be really curious, why would typing something into the address bar, the URL bar on Safari, uh, be able to be corrected if there's a bug in there with a server-side update. What is kind of happening there is a little bit curious, but was out there, was resolved. So if you ran into it, yeah, you weren't alone. It was happening, but it seems like it's fixed now somehow. Another story that was kind of interesting that came out this week has to do with the updated Apple TV 4K. As you know, Apple put out a new Apple TV 4K. It has some nice enhancements. It's not a ground earth-shattering update from the existing Apple TV 4K, but one of the big new features of it is it has an A15 Bionic chip in it, which is the same chip featured in the iPhone 13 models and this year's iPhone 14 non-pro models. But it looks like it might not be exactly the same chip. A site called Flat Panels HD did a review and they noticed a few things, including the fact that according to the tvOS developers site, the new Apple TV uses a version of the A15 Bionic with a four with a five core CPU, excuse me, which consists of two for two performance cores and three efficiency cores. And that's a little bit different than the 6-core version that was used in the iPhone. I think that has two performance cores and four efficiency cores. So there's one less efficiency core. Again, probably not going to make much of a difference in terms of the Apple TV 4K, but an interesting change or adjustment nonetheless. And it probably means that Apple is using what's called binned uh, CPUs. So probably CPUs that didn't pass QA for iPhones and are left over, and then they can use them for the Apple TV 4K. And this is a common practice. There's nothing defective about those chips. They just basically disable those cores that, that aren't working and go with the ones that do, that do work. So it, they just meet, didn't meet spec for the iPhone, but seems like a perfect application for the Apple TV 4K. Um, there was some speculation that maybe the GPU was also lowered to a 4-core, although that tvOS developer site does say it still has a five core GPU and that probably makes sense with the reviews performance testing because they say that the new version of the Apple TV 4K was about 40% faster so significantly faster than the previous version and many people have commented that it just feels snappier it feels faster it's going to do better with games and things like that in terms of processing and performance which is good you know if you're an Apple TV fan. And the same source also uncovered a bug in the Apple TV 4K when they were doing their testing. They noticed that if you have a 128 gigabyte storage model, that you were unable in tvOS 16.1 or the 16.2 beta to 
store more than 64 gigabytes on there. So it was like it was not recognizing the additional storage and not making that available to you. Pretty bad bug, but luckily Apple quickly rolled out a patch, tvOS 16.1.1 update to fix this issue, and uh, it is resolved at this point. So if you do have a new Apple TV 4K, 128 gigabyte, you probably want to make sure that you uh, update to tvOS 16.1.1 so you get the full capabilities of your new device. And good news, we finally have some details and pricing around Apple and Major League Soccer's new service coming to Apple TV Plus in February. Apple and Major League Soccer, you may remember, signed a 10-year deal for Apple to be the exclusive streaming partner for MLS. Uh, That is rumored to be costing Apple about $250 million a year. So they paid a lot for the privilege. We didn't have a lot of details, though, on how the package and service was going to work until this week when they kind of announced the details. So the package is going to be called MLS Season Pass. It's going to have every MLS and Leagues Cup match, as well as most of the MLS Next Pro and MLS Next games. What's really cool, in my opinion, is if you have the service, there's going to be no break, no blackouts, excuse me, or regional restrictions, and it's going to be available in in over 100 countries at launch. Now, there is one exception. Leagues Cup and Champions Cup games for viewers in Mexico are going to not be part of the package. I don't know why that is. I'm sure there's probably some regional deals that are blocking their ability to uh, to carry those in Mexico, most likely. Some other cool details about the service is it's going to be broadcast simultaneously in English and in Spanish, and they're going to have different broadcast crews for each language. Also, Canadian team games are going to be aired in French as well. And for every game, you'll be able to get the home club team audio as their radio from their radio broadcast if you choose to get that audio. So there's going to be a lot of options Games are going to remain on the service and be available to subscribers for streaming later after they've aired. So you can go back and look at historical games. And as far as pricing goes, the pass is going to cost $14.99 US per month or $99 a year for a season. And if you're already an Apple TV Plus subscriber, you get a discount on that. And the package will be $12.99 US per month or $79 per year. And even if you don't want to subscribe to the service, some games will be available to Apple TV Plus subscribers for no cost. Uh, things like the MLS is back opening weekend games. Those are actually going to be available to anyone using the Apple TV app, and they're going to be free as well. So there's going to be a lot of free content to kind of entice people to maybe sign up for the service. I'm not uh, personally a huge sports fan in general or a huge soccer fan, but this is kind of a big win for Apple, and I think it's kind of a big deal. And I think a lot of people are going to be very excited about this. The pricing seems very aggressive. It seems like a great service. I really appreciate the no blackouts or regional restrictions because I think it's horrible when you pay all this money for a service like this, a sports service, and then you're, you literally can't watch the games you want to watch. That's always a terrible experience. And I've never quite understood that part of the business. I understand it from a business perspective. I get why 
there are blackouts, but I just think it's bad for fans and uh, for people who want to pay for that kind of content. So it's nice to see they're not doing that here. So that's my kind of thoughts and opinions on it. Uh, I'd be curious to know what you think about this service. Are you excited about it? Do you think this is reasonable in the pricing and the offering? And uh, do you plan to buy it? Let me know, maccast at gmail.com. One other little bit, little bit of news in Apple TV Plus news. Deadline reported this week that Apple TV Plus has landed a new uh, comedy series from Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. Uh, it's untitled at this point, but according to the report, it's going to be a show about a legacy Hollywood movie studio trying to survive in a world where it's increasingly difficult for art and commerce to live together. Uh, that's about all we know about that one. It's probably not going to be on Apple TV Plus for a while. But again, Apple kind of landing some really nice talent. And, uh, you know, I I think they could use a few more comedy series. I I love Mythic Quest. Uh, I think it's great. But uh, a few more comedy series on Apple TV Plus would be really, really nice. So that's what's happening with Apple TV Plus news. There was an interesting little leak today, or this week, rather, that came out uh, regarding a MagSafe charger, or a version of a MagSafe charger that Apple seemingly was putting together, or maybe just exploring, probably a more accurate way to say that. A little bit of this is, you know, who really cares, but I guess it's kind of interesting to see what Apple is thinking about when it comes to different products and different options. What surfaced on Twitter was what looks to be an R&D version of a MagSafe charger from Apple's design validation testing. So when Apple puts together potential products in R&D, they often will put together a design validation test version of that product. And that's seemingly what got leaked here. It's basically a MagSafe charger uh, like the ones we have that Apple ultimately released, but in this case, it the charger was in an aluminum kind of base frame and could tilt up so you could potentially, you know, prop your iPhone against it. What was weird about it was it had a really low profile, so it probably meant that uh, if you were using it as an iPhone stand, it would really only work in landscape mode, which might make sense if you're using it as a clock or when a you know, watch movies while it's charging or something like that. But I think it ultimately just wasn't functional enough probably for Apple when they played around with the actual test model. And they probably decided to scrap it for that reason. But again, it's kind of interesting to see the thought process and the development process of products that Apple kind of plays around with and then ultimately decides not to release for one one reason or another. And this one seems pretty obvious because I think it just ultimately didn't have the functionality Apple was looking for, and they probably ultimately went with the version they released, which is just a simple puck that you could place your iPhone on and attaches with MagSafe, and you could use it with another stand or whatever you want while it's charging because it just magnetically connects to the back. So that's the thing we got, and I guess this week we got a, a little bit of a peek at the thing we did get. Apple updated iOS this past week and released their emergency SOS satellite feature for the iPhone 14 and iPhone iPhone 14 Pro models in the U.S. Uh, this was kind of a standout feature that Apple had at their iPhone event and a really nice safety enhancement for the iPhone. So it gives you the ability to actually 
send text messages in an emergency using a satellite system. And uh, it's nice to see Apple release this. Even better news, though, that came out with this announcement was that they are planning to bring the feature to other countries. France, Germany, Ireland, and the UK will get the feature in December. And they also plan to roll out even more regions next year. Uh, the service is free at launch, so in the U.S. it will be available for free, though ultimately it probably will require some kind of a subscription or some kind of payment, I would imagine. Uh, and if you want to play around with it and you own an iPhone 14, iPhone 14 Pro, and you live in the U.S., Apple actually put together a little demo mode you could try it out with. I went out tried it, and it worked great for me. Uh, if you go into Settings, emergency SOS, there is a try demo button. And again, you need to, you do need to have an iPhone 14 model to be able to play around with that. So if you want to check it out, it's out and available now with the latest iOS update. And then one little other update Apple did push out. I don't remember if we talked about this or not, but Apple had a kind of beta version of an iCloud.com redesign they played around with that for a couple of weeks, and it looks like they decided it was a good update. They have released that out to everybody at iCloud.com. So now when you go to iCloud.com, you can actually set up a page that can be customized with various tiles for your favorite or f frequently used features on iCloud.com. I don't uh, tend to use iCloud.com a lot, but uh, I would have went in and played around with this. It's a nice little enhancement. And if you do rely on iCloud.com, I think a lot of people do, especially if they are cross-platform. Maybe you use Android or maybe you also uh, have a PC and you need to access your iCloud features. This is a nice little update and, again, is available now to anyone who has an iCloud.com account. And then finally in the news for this week, uh, Ming-Chi Kuo is out with uh, some possible new details on Apple moving the iPhone to USB-C, spe specifically the iPhone 15 Pro models that are likely due out next year. Apple has already mentioned that they are planning to move the iPhone to USB-C from Lightning. I don't think they've given a specific timeline, but I think a lot, of, a lot of us believe it'll happen with this next model. And big reason Apple's giving for the move is to comply with the new regulations that were recently announced in the EU. The fact that an iPhone would have a USB-C connection means that a lot of us are hoping they're going to bring Thunderbolt support and fa faster transfer speeds to the iPhone. And according to Ming-Chi Kuo, they are planning to do that, but it's looking like they might keep that as just a pro feature. So another differentiation to get people to kind of upgrade to the pro models, maybe spend a little bit more money. He says for the wired connection, uh, Apple will support at least USB 3.2 speeds or maybe Thunderbolt 3 speeds on the iPhone. So that's 20 gigabits per second or 40 gigabits per second, respectively. I personally hope they would do the latter. Uh, they definitely have the technology in there to be able to do that. So I don't know why they would stop short. But he does say that for non-pro versions that have the USB-C connector, Apple will stick with the slower USB-C 2.0 data transfer speeds, which I, I kind of get it, but I think it's a little bit disappointing. I just wish Apple would uh, 
to move on. And if they are going to do USB-C and Thunderbolt, just go full bore across the board on the iPhone. Uh, I don't see that as being a pro-only level feature, especially as we move to larger storage and maybe people want to be able to transfer data back and forth, especially large photo libraries or large movie files like 4K or maybe even you know 8K at some point movie files, which we might be getting to. So we'll have to wait and see ultimately what they do. Meanwhile, uh, just something to be aware of, and I think we talked about this on the last episode of the MacCast, if your hopes for the holidays were a new iPhone 14 Pro, you might be too late. It's looking like online shipping times have already moved past December 25th, so Apple's having supply chain shortages. They've talked about it. They've kind of warned that they were expecting this. Uh, Still, you might be able to luck out and find an iPhone 14 Pro at an Apple retail store or maybe a carrier store or maybe your local big box store. So it might not be totally too late yet, but I would not dilly-dally on kind of any Apple products. If you're planning on getting some Apple products for the holidays, probably want to get out and pick them up now. Uh, Sooner is probably better than later at this point. And then kind of the last thing in Apple iPhone-related news, Tim Cook reportedly said at an internal meeting while going around uh, touring Apple's operations in Europe that Apple would be, quote, buying chips out of a plant in Arizona. And he kind of alluded to the fact that that would start up sometime in 2024. And if that sounds familiar, you may remember that we've been talking about Uh, Apple's manufacturing partner, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, TSMC, opening a plant in Arizona in 2024, a chip plant. And uh, it sounds exciting. It sounds like, hey, Apple's going to be producing chips in the United States for their Macs and iPhones. Uh, That might not be happening here. Apple will likely be getting chips from the factory, but as Bloomberg notes... Uh, It's unclear exactly what chips TSMC would provide for Apple from those facilities. And the reason it's unclear is because that plant or those plants are rumored to be a fab with that will have capabilities of a five nanometer and possibly four nanometer process. Apple's processors are already on uh, four nanometer, I think, for a lot of their uh, A series and M series processors, and they're going to be moving beyond that. They're supposedly going to move to three nanometer by 2024, which is when this facility would be complete, possibly even moving into two nanometer processes. So that facility in Arizona wouldn't be able to supply those kinds of chips. Also, those facilities are going to be relatively small in the scheme of uh, TSMC's total operations. So they're going to be capacity of about 1.6% or something of the entire capacity of TSMC. So they're not going to be able to produce a volume level of chips for something like an iPhone or a Mac. They're not really going to be for those flagship products. So most likely what would happen is Apple would source some of their less sophisticated chips, maybe chips for Apple TV Plus or Apple Watch, HomePods, something like that. And so while that's a great, you know, good PR move for Apple to say, hey, we're getting chips or we're having chips produced in America, it's not going to be the bulk of their their chip business. And it's, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just 
good to put things in perspective, right? To kind of know what's going on. And it's still cool that Apple's going to have a more regionally diversified supply chain, all those sorts of things. Super exciting that we're moving some chip production back into the United States. Uh, we all are, I think, could be pretty happy about that. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of what's going on with that. And with that, that is going to do it for the news for this week. Before we move on, I do want to take a quick moment, thank a couple show sponsors. Starting off with Simply Safe. Did you know that over the holidays, property crimes like burglaries and package thefts spike nationally? That's why our friends at Simply Safe Home Security are offering 50% off their award-winning security system so that more families can feel safe and secure this holiday season. Order your Simply Safe system at half off today and enjoy advanced security and greater peace of mind this holiday season. And here's why I love Simply Safe. It is the ease of setup and the flexibility of the system. You're able to install the system with ease. I did it myself and it was simple. It took no time at all. And they offer a wide array of sensors so you could easily build a system that meets your needs and can adapt should you need it. And that was something I was actually able to do when I moved because I had a larger home area to cover. So I could add new sensors and new areas and new zones to my system. And again, do it quickly and easily. And those reasons are one of the reasons why Simply Safe was named the best home security system of 2022 by U.S. News and World Report for a third year in a row. In an emergency, their 24-7 professional monitoring agents use Fast Protect technology exclusively from Simply Safe to capture critical evidence and verify that a threat is real so you can get a priority police response. Simply Safe is a whole home security system with advanced sensors for every room, window, and door. They have HD security cameras for inside and out. Smarter ways to detect motion that alert you only when a threat is real, and even hazard sensors that detect fires, floods, and other threats to your home. 24-7 professional monitoring costs under a dollar a day. That's less than half the price of ADT's traditional professionally installed system. And with the top-rated Simply Safe app, you stay in complete control of the system anytime, anywhere, arm or disarm unlock for a guest, access your security cameras, or adjust the system settings. Don't miss your chance for massive savings on my favorite security system. Get 50% off any new system at simplysafe.com slash maccast today. This is their biggest discount of the year. That's simplysafe.com slash maccast. There's no safe like Simply Safe. I'd also like to take a moment to thank my sponsor, NordVPN. Hey, are you missing out on your favorite show because it's not available in your region? Or maybe you want to keep your data and information private. Well, let me introduce you to NordVPN. One thing that I know is frustrating for me is region locks on streaming content. I've so many times had somebody say, hey, I, there's this great show you should check out. And I go to check it out and it's not available in my region, but I find out hey, it's available in some other country on the same service. Well, NordVPN can solve this for you because with a click of a button, you have access to more than 5,000 server options. So no show is out of your reach. Using my link, nordvpn.com slash maccast, you can receive a huge discount on a two-year plan 
plus get four months free. And privacy, you know, I worry about my data, especially when I'm using open Wi-Fi hotspots and access points. Normally when I'm traveling or at a cafe or maybe I've gone to an event, in those situations, NordVPN keeps my information encrypted so I never have to worry about my IP or location getting out. NordVPN offers new threat protection features so you can say goodbye to intrusive websites and ads and malware. Even if you download an infected file, threat protection kicks in and deletes it before it makes a mess of your computer. Grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com slash maccast to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan plus four months free. It's completely risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. You can give it a try, and if you like it, great. If you don't, they'll issue a refund so you can pretend that the entire situation never happened. Use my link, nordvpn.com slash maccast to get your subscription started today. And a big thank you to NordVPN for their support of the MacCast. On the last episode of the MacCast, you may remember we had uh, somebody write in and ask about running modern versions of macOS on maybe older computers that don't directly support or don't have Apple's direct support for that operating system. And they were asking specifically about a software package called OpenCore Legacy Patcher. And I kind of gave you my thoughts and opinions on that, but I did ask for some feedback from the community about, hey, are there some of you out there who have tried or played around with these legacy patchers and run you know, more modern versions of macOS on your on your Macs than Apple officially supports. And I had a lot of opinions and a lot of feedback from you in our community. And most of you seem to agree with my assessment that, hey, this is something if you really want to do it, uh, you don't want to do it probably on your main machine, on a machine that you rely on day in, day out. But if it's something you want to play around with, you want to see if you can get up and running, hey, go for it. You know, it's probably going to, take some time. It's going to be technically difficult and you're likely going to run into some little quirks and issues. Uh, I don't think you're going to have as reliable a system as you would like. And that seemed to kind of pan out with a lot of you. As a matter of fact, Dan wrote in, he emailed me and said, hey, I've used a couple of these patchers on two older machines to allow them to run uh, macOS Catalina and macOS Mojave. He said, hey, it worked, but the machines never quite functioned really as well or reliably as he would have liked. And he said, I even eventually rolled back one of them to its supported OS and it was much more stable and more easily usable. He didn't do this on any of his main systems, which I think was a good call. And he said, even the other one, he said, it continues to kind of have, have odd behavior. He kind of puts up with it, but he agrees that it uh, is likely for most people not worth the effort to try to do this. And then I also received an email from David who said, hey, I just updated. Uh, you know, this was particularly timely for David, I think. He said, I just updated my 2010 iMac with the OpenCore Legacy Patcher. Uh, my, his machine seemed kind of primed for it because he had already done an SSD upgrade and upgraded the RAM to 8 gigabyte, gigabytes. So 
performance on the machine is still pretty good. He says it still does suffer from having an older GPU, which also required patching, which if you've ever done a GPU patch, that's that's a little bit uh, dicey and kind of hard to do. But, uh, you know, again, if you're technically savvy, you could definitely pull it off. And it sounds like David did. He took... Uh, his system up to just Big Sur, not Monterey, although with the patcher, it would technically be capable of, uh, capable of it. But he was, I think, trying to be a little bit more conservative. Ventura wasn't even an option, so wasn't able to go that far. But he was able to vouch for the patcher. He says it really was amazing. It made the process fairly simple. It uh, actually builds a bootable USB drive that you can install whichever version you choose of Mac OS that you're going to be running on your system. He says it does a great job of identifying what additional patches and other things you're going to need for your machine based on its specifications. And he did note that the first time he tried to do the patcher, it stalled out when he went to reboot. So he did have to kind of redo it. He had to erase and reinstall and reboot it. Another reason why you probably don't want to do this on your main system. Another reason why you probably want to make sure you have really good backups uh, before you start this process. And even after all of that, though, he mentioned that, hey, I am getting random artifacting on the display, likely caused, it sounds like, by maybe an issue with Firefox. Uh, but he's still trying to investigate that. So great example of, hey, it worked. It's kind of up and running, but... I'm having to tweak around with things and I'm having little odd issues that I have to work through and stuff like that. So definitely confirms this probably isn't something you want to run on a primary system that you rely on uh, for getting work done. Uh, But David did point out, hey, I wish that Apple would provide some of the features of these updates for older OSs. Maybe not all of the features, but they could roll in potentially and support new features across older over older devices. And I think he gave what would be a great example. You know, the iCloud shared photo library feature that came out with Ventura and iOS 16, that's really on the server side of things. That's on the iOS side of things. I think you could do a simple update to the Photos app and probably support that on older operating systems. I, I can't imagine there's anything technically that would prevent Apple from being able to roll that feature to older operating systems. I think in the past too, we've had things like iCloud, uh, iCloud reminders updates and things like that that required operating system updates. And that was a little bit odd. And I know a few people in the community that relied on these patchers so that they could actually upgrade their family system because they might have a system that they could update get a new feature and a new family sharing feature or something like that, but someone might be on a little bit older Macintosh that also requires that update that they can't update to. So it'd be nice if Apple would kind of make that a little bit more available. And I kind of agree with that. Um, If there definitely is not kind of any technical challenge or technical reason at the hardware level that that couldn't happen. So I don't know what your thoughts and opinions on this are, but it sounds like there are some of you out in our community using these patchers and having some success with them, albeit a little bit mixed. So again, it's something to be aware of, something that is available to you should you want to kind of go in and tinker, but uh, be careful out there. And uh, again, I really need my systems to be dead reliable. So I worry about this stuff a little bit, but for playing around and experimenting, I think more power to you go for it. I have some tips and tricks I want to share with you this week regarding iOS and specifically long pressing. 
Uh, this is a feature of, I guess it's a gesture really, that I haven't used too frequently until more recently. And I don't know why I've held off on using it. I think a lot of times I just don't think about it. The fact that in a lot of cases, and I guess this goes back to a lot of the conversations I've had about Apple having hidden UI on iOS. There's a lot of cases where I don't think to long press, but if I do long press on something, I get additional features and functionality that are really pretty cool and really pretty neat. And so I wanted to share some of my long press tips and tricks with you, really in the hopes that you're going to share with me some of your cool tips and tricks regarding long pressing in various apps and various places in iOS so that I can help discover some of those things. Because again, I don't know all the places where I can actually long press and get additional features. So I have a few for you today, and hopefully you'll share some with me for future episodes of the MacCast. So I'm going to kind of break these down into a couple different areas where I use them. Control Center is one of the big areas where I've kind of discovered long pressing gives you some additional features and benefits. One of my favorite ones is the flashlight widget, or is it a widget in Control Center or really just a button? The flashlight button in Control Center, if you long press on that, you can actually get a version of flashlight where you can control the brightness. So I use this at night, especially when I'm trying to find something in my room and I maybe don't want to disturb my wife. I can bring up the flashlight, but at minimal brightness so I can see what I need to see, but I don't have to go full brightness and sort of possibly wake her up. Another really cool feature is the timer. If you press and hold on the timer icon, you'll get a little slider to quick start your timers with a bunch of kind of presets. So if you just need a five minute timer or a 15 minute timer or something like that, you could slide up and you could start it right from the control center and you don't even have to go into the timer app or the, or the clock app, which is really nice. The camera icon also has some additional features. If you long press on it, the control center, you can quickly go into a mode to take a selfie, to record a video, or take a portrait mode photo or portrait mode selfie. So those are kind of three little neat ones for control center. Uh, another great area to try out long pressing is on notifications. And this is really notification specific. It kind of depends on the app and the notification, but a lot of times if you long press on a notification, you'll get additional features or options for that. So a really handy one is for message notifications. If you do that, you could quick reply right from the notification itself. So you again, you don't even have to go into the messages app to do a reply. And uh, one I like too is Instagram. If you long press on an Instagram notification, you can actually see the post. You can see the Instagram photo without having to leave the notification or the lock screen. So you kind of decide, hey, do I want to go into Instagram at this point? And it, that one's nice because it keeps you from maybe getting more distracted by that notification, right? Because if you use Instagram, you know it's easy to get caught up in the app once you're in there to go, kind of go scrolling through and then suddenly a lot of time has gone by and you don't know what happened. So that's kind of a kind of a handy one. Another great place to try long pressing is on widgets or apps on your home screen. A lot of applications, application icons give you additional options and quick actions for uh, doing things within the app. So 
For example, Fantastical is one of my favorite uh, iOS calendar apps. And uh, I can quickly add a new event right from the quick action off of the home screen icon if I just tap and hold on it for a second. Also, uh, back buttons and links, specifically in settings. So if you've ever been in settings and you drill down way down into the menu system or deep down into a setting, if you press and hold on the little back button or back link, it will give you a drop-down menu, and you can go back to any level. So you can kind of select the level. Something very similar to that is in Safari, and there's a bunch of long press functionality inside Safari. But if you uh, press and hold on the back or forward arrows, you can actually see uh, the full history, and you can go back or forward in your history Again, skipping multiple levels or multiple iterations of that of that history. And another handy place to long press in Safari is on the URL bar. That will give you options to copy the URL. You could do a quick voice search. Uh, you could pin a tab or move uh, into a tab group, that, uh, that tab that you're currently on. For the bookmarks icon, you long press on that. Handy one here is you can add all of your open tabs to bookmarks all at once. So if you're have doing a bunch of research or something like that, and you have a bunch of tabs you want to quickly bookmark together, you can do that all in one action. Or you could quickly add something to your reading list by tapping and holding on the bookmark icon. And then finally in Safari, the tab icon, and this is one of my favorites inside Safari because I often find that I have, you know, tons of tabs open suddenly in Safari. If you tap and hold on the tab icon, you can close all of your open tabs at once. You can just close a single tab, or you can move all of your tabs into a tab group quickly and easily to give yourself a little bit more organization. So a lot of great little hints and tips on ways to use long pressing on iOS. These are just some of my favorites and some that I know about. Like I said, I'm sure you have some other great ones. If you want to share those, send me an email or an audio comment to maccast at gmail.com. And then finally, in the show for this week, talked a little bit about wanting to do for the next few episodes some holiday gift recommendations, uh, things that we have found in our community, either software, hardware, uh, it could just be a cool website, anything that you could think of that you think would be great to share with someone for the holidays. So I guess it doesn't even have to technically be a quote-unquote gift. I guess these are gifts for the community in a lot of ways as well. They could even be gifts for yourself if uh, if you think that way. But looking for recommendations on cool things for the Mac fans and the Apple fans in your life. So please continue to share those. But this week I got a couple of great ones that I wanted to share with you. And as often happens... A theme popped up this week. I had a number of recommendations for to-do list apps. Uh, a lot of you seems like want to get a little bit more organized this holiday season. And Bob wrote in and he says, I really like the app Todoist. And I will have links to these in the show notes at maccast.com. So uh, don't worry about writing these down. But 
It's a subscription-based to-do app, but they do have a free tier that Bob says is very feature-rich. So you probably don't even need to buy the subscription. Uh, buy it if you want, but maybe start out with the free version and see if it works for you. And he said, hey, this works great across iPhone, iPad, Apple Watch, and Mac OS. Supports all of them. Bob particularly likes the fact that it has a natural language entry feature. So when you create a new to-do it will actually recognize common terms and phrases. So if you put in a time frame, it'll automatically set up, you know, a reminder for that time frame or that date. So those are really handy on the data entry side. I looked at the app. I haven't used it uh, myself, but it looks like you could easily organize your to-dos into projects to kind of keep them siloed or into little groupings. So you might have some for home, some for work, those sorts of things. And you can set due dates, you can set recurring tasks. So it looks very, very full featured, also looks very well designed. So Bob, I think this is a great recommendation. So it's called Todoist. Then Dan wrote in and he said, hey, I really like the to-do app Things from Cultured Code. And this is one of my favorites too. It's been around for a long, long time. And it follows more of that getting things done methodology. It is a beautifully designed app. They continue to enhance it and make it better and better. It gives you this today view. So you kind of see what's on your agenda for the current day. Uh, they have a really cool now checklist feature that allows you to manage to do's that might have multiple steps. So uh, you could kind of set up one to do that's like your overarching. And then if you have little kind of subtasks within that, you could build out a checklist it also supports Mac, iOS, and iPad, although just be aware you do have to buy those versions separately. So it's a little bit more expensive, but it's a very full-featured, very, very capable app. Um, and then Dan had a second recommendation. He said, hey, if you need something that's going to be a little bit more nagging uh, to try to force you to do your to-do list. And I fall in that group. You know, I often am a procrastinator and I put things off and I've tried to do apps and I kind of tend to ignore them sometimes uh, when, when my due dates come up or to-dos come up to do. So I said, if you're like that, you could check out this app called Do. And this one seems to have a really unique user interface and a really unique entry mechanism. It seems to be focused a lot around the actual notifications. So you could interact with a notification. You can reschedule a to-do. You could delay a to-do. Uh, it has this thing called auto snooze. So you could snooze your to-dos, but the point is they keep coming back. So if you try to ignore them, it will keep notifying you, notifying you, notifying you until you actually mark that item off. It also has countdown timers built into it. So if you want to do little timers for tasks throughout the day, uh, you could do that. So I, I would imagine that's sort of like that Pomodoro technique. You could be using it for that. So there seems to be a lot of applications for this one. So that one's called Do. So the three recommendations, just to summarize, Todoist, Things, or the Do app if you are looking for a different kind of to-do list. And then Dan did have a pretty extensive list outside of just the to-do list apps. And I wanted to share with you a couple of highlights from, from his list that I totally agree with as well. First one was 1Password, a great 
password manager. I think everybody should have a password manager. There's lots of great ones out there, but one password happens to be my favorite. I think it's one of the more full featured ones. It is a little bit more on the expensive side. It is a subscription app, but I think this would be a great gift for a family. I use the family version of this. And what I love about the family version of one password is I can create different collections. So I have a collection that is just my passwords. I have a collection for my wife and myself for kind of passwords that we need to share. I have a family set of passwords that like, for example, all of our streaming services so that my kids, my wife, and myself can all access, you know, our different streaming services like Hulu, Netflix, Amazon, all those sorts of things. So I could build out these little collections and I could share them. I also love the ability to one-time share passwords with people. So if I need to give somebody a, a temporary password or something like that, I could easily do that. Also, one of my favorite features, the ability to store my two-factor codes within one password itself so I don't have to go out to a separate app I can actually have one password autofill in my two-factor authentication codes it is a lifesaver in my opinion I absolutely love it also all of the syncing options it's just a really great application so if you're looking for a great password manager one password is a great choice and then another thing uh, Dan had was a great recommendation if you're wanting to learn or expand it, or expand your programming skills, specifically in Swift, Swift UI, or UI Kit. So maybe you want to get into iOS development. Uh, he told me about this guy, Sean Allen, who has a great YouTube channel with a bunch of free YouTube videos all around Swift, Swift UI, and UI Kit. Uh, Sean also has complete courses that you could purchase via his website. Um, but the free stuff on YouTube should get you started very, very well. And I think this is a great find. So if you're looking for that, uh, check that out. Again, I'll have links to this in the show notes at maccast.com. And then finally, on Dan's list, there was one little fun game application. It's called Waduku. So like Wood Sudoku. And it is a free ad-supported puzzler type game. That to me looks like a mashup between Tetris and Sudoku. So it just looks really, really beautiful. I haven't had a chance to try it out yet, but it's definitely going to be on my list to check out. And uh, if you want to check it out, uh, you could check that out as well. So just look in the App Store for, for Waduku. He says it's a great little puzzle game that he really enjoys. And so I thought these were some great recommendations and wanted to share them with you. So like I said, we're going to be continuing to make these holiday recommendations. If you have some you want to share with us, you want to share with the community, please send those in. Matcast at gmail.com is the email, or even better yet, record your own little mini review or mini recommendation. Keep it to a minute or two, maybe two or three minutes at max, and uh, send that along as an audio comment. We'll share that with the community on a future episode of the Matcast. Matcast at gmail.com is where you send those, but with that... That is going to do it for the show for this week. I'd like to take a quick moment and thank a couple of our show supporters. Bandwidth for the MacCast is provided by Cashfly. You can find them at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. And all advertising on the MacCast is handled by Backbeat Media. They are at BackbeatMedia.com. As always, I love hearing from you. If you have a comment, a question, something you'd like to hear covered on a future episode of the MacCast, 
please send your emails and audio comments to backcast at gmail.com. You're also welcome to call in on the listener hotline. That phone number is 281-622-4269, 281-MAC-IM-9. And if you need show notes, links to anything I talked about on this or any other episode of the MacCast, you'll find those on the website. That's at maccast.com. And finally, if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash MacCast. You can check out the MacCast Facebook page over at facebook.com slash the MacCast or find me on Instagram, just MacCast on Instagram. But that is going to do it for now. Until next time, I will talk to you all again real soon. 